Inside of your announcement sheet is, a, is an outline that you can use to, uh, to go through this, this lesson as we uh, continue our study of, of heaven, resurrection, these kinds of things. Uh, we're we're going to continue this for the, uh, the next couple of weeks. And uh, there might be something that, uh, that answers a question for you, or it might be something that you want to further do some further study on. Use that, uh, that sheet to take some notes down, and um, uh, we're going to uh, ask God to bless us as we go into the study. Before we do that, though, uh, just want to say uh, hello to, to some of the folks that, uh, that are streaming in with us right now. In particular, I want to say uh, greetings, not only from me, but from the entire church family to... Uh, Glenn and Stacia Gray and their friend uh, Joanne, who is visiting with them from Ohio, and uh, we want to pray for the Grays and, and for all of the folks that couldn't be with us this morning. Glad that you're here. Let's bow our heads together as one body and join our hearts. Father, when we think about that fair land, our heart swells because we want to be there, because not only are we going to be there with all of our loved ones, but more than anything else, it is going to be a place where your presence never leaves us. That we're always in, in your sight, in you and ours. And when we think about uh, our future, Father, we're asking you to help us to be able to see it with eyes and, and to hear it with the ears, Father, that you give us so that it really does change the way that we contemplate not just today and tomorrow but our future and to find hope and to find strength and to find courage in all of that and to be lovely and to be kind and to be gentle, Father, because of the greatness of that gift of heaven to us. And this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a story, uh, one I've told you a couple of times over the last decade and a half or so. It's an Albert Einstein story, uh, probably apocryphal, probably never happened, but it's a great story I'm going to tell you anyway. He's uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. He's a professor at Princeton. And as you know, he's giving lectures on the weekends wherever he, you know, whenever he can fit it into his schedule. There's a story that is told that he's on this train from Princeton going to some place to lecture and he's right in the middle of thought when the porter comes by, and this is in the days when a porter would come by, open up the compartment that you're in, would take your card, punch it, give it back to you, and keep going. People traveled a lot by train, and that was the way you did it. So the porter comes by, slides open the doors, uh, says, Dr. Einstein, your ticket, please. Einstein starts fumbling around, looking in his pocket, his vest pockets, looking everywhere. And it's obvious that he cannot find his ticket. And he's starting to get flustered, get a little embarrassed. Porter says, well, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. We know you. We trust you. We know that you wouldn't even be on this train if you didn't have a ticket. You're okay. And he slides the door, and he goes up and down the aisle, getting everybody's ticket and punching it. When he's done, he's going back to his office in the back of the passenger car, and he happens to walk by, and through the window, he sees Dr. Einstein down on his hands and knees, lifting up pillows and looking at stuff, and he opens up the door, and he goes, Dr. Einstein, seriously, you're okay we know who you are. We, we know that you're going someplace. We know you had a ticket. Please do not worry. We trust you. And Einstein, still down on his hands and knees, looks up in frustration and goes, I know who I am. I know who you are, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> K. 
Can you imagine a guy that knows the universe more than anybody else on the planet not knowing where he's going? But that's the story. It also illustrates that one of the really, really gigantic questions that every human being asks at one point, at least one point, but if truth were to be told, probably a lot of points, the question that we ask ourselves is this, where in the world am I going? Where are we going? Where am I going? Disciples of Jesus believe that one day we will be reunited. That is, we will be face to face with God and there will be no fear of destruction when we see Him face to face. I mean, you know the story. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we were created for fellowship with God. God walking with man, man walking with God, conversing with God, fellowshipping, living, relational with each other. And then Genesis 3 rolls around, and that's the story of where we learned that we decided that that was not a good enough gig for us. We decided that, that we wanted to run our own show, and we decided that fellowship with God was sort of secondary to fulfilling ourselves. And when we introduced sin into the world, the world was decimated with evil. Euphemistically, in Genesis 3, referred to as the world being filled with thorns and thistles. Now the goal of creation, the goal of creation was never salvation. The goal of creation was fellowship. The goal of creation was that you and I would relate to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in ways that none of us have ever related to them, even as disciples of Jesus after a long time, to relate to them in a way that we have never related to them ever before. Salvation and redemption is God's initiative to put things back together again. Now, a religious writer, a fellow by the name of William Willimon, says you can put the gospel in seven words. God refuses to be God without us. Spend the rest of the day thinking about that. God refuses to be God without us. And that's why passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 are really, really important. And they, even more so than Willeman's statement, deserve our attention. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul writes to that church in Thessalonica, and so after all of the stuff that he's written about the coming of, 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 of the Son and what happens to the dead. And he says, and so, based on all of that, we will be with the Lord, say it with me, forever. In fact, let's say that verse together with our outside voices. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Two implications in that verse. More than that, but two that I want to point out. The first one is, Every day you and I live with a reminder that we have not just been dismissed from the garden, but we have been barred from it. And there, the reality of being banished from Eden in Christ will be reversed because what Paul says is we are going to be with the Lord. You know, there, there are times, and you know, being with the Lord, I mean, again, it's, it's part of meditating and allowing ourselves to kind of gnaw like a dog on a bone, to gnaw and to growl and to grumble over this, these words in order for them to become a way that we think about ourselves in this world and to think about God interacting with our life in this world. You, you know, what, 
There are times, and you know this, that it, I'm separated by, by lots of miles from Ellen. Uh, sometimes uh, outside the city, outside the state, sometimes even outside of the country. And separated, super separated from her in terms of space and time and air miles. And, you know, there are times when I begin to miss her and I begin to yearn for her and to long for her and there are memories of her that begin to fill my mind and there are, are all of these pleasant thoughts and the memories and the experiences and all of that visceral stuff that happens when you've lived with somebody for decades that you love and know you know they love you very dearly and your, you know, all of that stuff in your head all of a sudden begins to trickle down into your heart and your heart just feels like it's going to explode in all of the, the memory of the greatness of that relationship the experience of it. But it's just small potatoes compared to being with her. Sometimes we worship this gigantic truth. Brad leading us in singing this morning, thinking about the holiness of God, and a God like that would love us, or that God is providing this, this, this place that we can look forward to in, in the future. We, we sometimes worship, or there's some huge truth that comes into our mind, and we feel so close to God. My friends, that is only a shadow. It's a sip. It's just a taste of what it means to be with God, which leads to the second impl implication, and that is with God forever. Can you imagine being with God forever, that there's never, ever, ever any time, there's no space in any of your existence where you will not feel the heaviness of the presence of God in your life? And so what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is to answer that big question of where am I going? The answer is you and I are going to be with God forever. You and I, disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, people who have placed all of our faith, all of our trust in Christ, are going to be with God forever. And it brings up two questions. One will answer this morning. The next will answer uh, in a couple of weeks. The first question is, who will you and I be? What will we be like when we get to heaven? We've been talking a little bit about that last week. The second question is, what will heaven be like? We'll answer that in a couple of weeks. But first, let's talk about you and I again. Spent some time talking about this last week. Talk about it some more this morning. I, I want to start by giving you a little bit of a confession. I was raised and have spent most of my life thinking that, that heaven was sort of this flimsy place. That it was a flimsy place that you sort of floated around in for all of eternity. I believed with all of my heart that heaven was a good and a happy place, but heaven was a little vague. You know what I'm saying? It was just a little vague. It was not really all of that inspiring, except that it was the opposite of what hell was described in the Bible. And for hell, there was nothing vague about it. Fire, burning, darkness, the gnashing of teeth, worms, worms that never die, misery and anguish. I was certain that I did not want to go to that place. But heaven seemed, and I, I feel nearly blasphemous in thinking this way, heaven was kind of dull. Heaven was, was listless. 
And yet there was a part of me that thought, how could being in the presence of God who created the heavens and the earth not be provocative and electrifying and intoxicating just to be in His presence? I mean, think about this God. He is the God that created monkeys and chihuahuas. I did not know at the time, because I didn't have a word for it, I did not know that I was suffering theologically from a form of Christoplatinitis. What that means is that I suffered from an understanding of heaven that was half Christ and half Plato. Now as a Christian, I believed in this good place called heaven, but my concept of heaven was more Plato than it was Scripture. Plato, as you remember, was, you know, he followed Socrates, Aristotle followed him. Plato was one of those guys. In fact, if you, if you think about the ancient pagan world, Homer was the Old Testament. People went to Homer uh, sort of earlier before Plato to try to figure out what the afterlife was all about. And Plato was the New Testament of the ancient pagan world. It was after Homer that Plato came and it was his writings that people began to form their ideas outside of Christ, outside of the Bible, what heaven would be like or what life after death would be like. And you know from all of your studies that, that, that Plato was a guy that thought that the spirit was all there was that was good. And that the material, which included the earth and also included our bodies, that was bad. And that all of life should be dedicated to somehow liberating the spirit from the body. Now not only had that kind of thinking begun to enter into 21st, 21st and 20th century church, but it goes all the way back to the beginning pages of the New Testament, the first century. This idea that the body was bad and the spirit was the only thing that was good crept into the church that, that John, the apostle John, was ministering to. And it became known as Gnosticism. We find an example of it in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. John writes, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, there it is. How in the world could a good God inhabit something like the flesh? He's not God if that's what Jesus did. That's what they were teaching. Who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now we seem to think that the antichrist is some end of, of time figure that's political, military, you know, something. And, you know, he's basically, his first name is Damien you know, from the movies. We just have kind of this Hollywood idea of the anti... You know what the Antichrist is? The guy that's against Christ. And in this particular application, it's the guy that says, what you think is Jesus is not Jesus because if he's really God and he came in the flesh, then that doesn't work. This kind of thinking about the body has not gone away. And most people in America think that they will not have a body in the life to come. We think that this body is just a place where God stores all of the good stuff like your soul and, and your spirit. It's kind of like the shed in the backyard. Shed, you don't want to live in it, but it's a good place to store stuff. That's how we think about it. We think of this, this, this body as something that is going to be annihilated, but then listen to these scriptures. First one from Paul, I'll read again what Curtis read to us from Philippians chapter 3. He says, you know, there are a lot of people that, that live as enemies of, of the cross and enemies of the kingdom of God in this world. But notice this, 
Paul says to my brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will what? Transform our lowly, say it, bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. We go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify. That's one of those big words. It really means that what God is doing through His Spirit, that He's invested in you when you were baptized and put your faith in Christ, that He is trying to make you a mini-Christ. He's put His Spirit in you to sanctify you, which is to make you holy, to make you a saint. Saints are nobody special. Saints are people like me. People like you that God is trying to make holy. That the God of peace will sanctify you completely, thoroughly, every part of your being, through and through may your whole spirit and soul and what? Body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we go to Romans chapter 8. Paul is still writing this stuff. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, there it is, we have the Spirit, therefore, as he says to first, uh, in First Thessalonians, we're being sanctified we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that in Romans 8 that the bodies we have will be redeemed. Aren't those miracles really interesting things in the Bible? I believe there's a, a reason why there are physical healings, not only in the Bible, but in our, in our present world. I mean, God did not stop healing people just because you get to the maps in your Bible. One reason why there are these physical healings of our bodies in this world is because of, of, of God's great mercy, His great compassion. Sometimes it comes because of mercy. Sometimes it comes because of compassion. Another reason that it sometimes comes is that it becomes an open door to belief. Another reason is that sometimes they come in order to strengthen belief. But there are those times when someone becomes desperately ill and the doctors give a, a smidgen at best of hope. There's a little hope. The church comes together and prays and this really beautiful thing happens. This person recovers health. What is it that happened? Mercy, strengthening of belief, the opening door to faith. But that healing is also a spoiler alert. Healings are not the end. They are a glimpse of the end. One of the great truths of the New Testament is that we will have a body in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will 
be changed. Now don't be thrown off by that phrase, flesh and blood. Remembering that Paul is referencing as he's writing this, this, this great chapter on the resurrection, remember that he is referencing people who are alive at the time of the second coming. He is referencing those who are still alive at the coming, but who are still trapped in corruptible, decaying human existence, still fallen human, uh, uh, humanity. What he's saying at the second coming is that those who have their faith in the Christ, at His coming, they, like those who have fallen asleep, will be changed. And what we will experience is continuity in the bodily resurrection. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15. We drop down to verse 37. He says, you know, when you sow... You do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Now Paul's point is that there is a connection and a continuity between the simple seed and the full-grown plant, right? When you, when you plant wheat, you don't get a rutabaga and you don't get a chicken. What you get when you plant wheat is you get a stalk of wheat. But on the other hand, there is a difference. The mature plant in full bloom is more beautiful than the seed. And this analogy is, is applied to the resurrection body. We're still in 1 Corinthians 15, but now look at verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Just a word here, and we'll talk about this more next time, but when he talks about natural and spiritual, he's not talking about the material. He is not talking about what that body is made out of, but what it is that animates it. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, a mundane body, a body without the spirit, a body that is in decay, there will be one where the spirit that never dies will animate it forever and ever and ever. But the big question is, why would you even bother with it? Why would you even bother with it? I mean, let it go. I mean, I got a couple of knees here that, you know, every once in a while I get out of bed and I'm going, you know what? I need these knees not to be replaced. I need them to be resurrected. I mean, why bother? I mean, let it go. Who needs it? Why the fuss over arms and tonsils and elbows and, and, and gums and a pancreas? The answer is that God created nothing of matter in order just to throw it away. God created nothing to throw it away. Nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 ever even comes close to indicating that the earth was like a two-year-old microwave that once it had kind of run its course and began to kind of, you know, going to toss it and buy another one. No, in the middle of that garden was a, a tree of what? Life. A tree of life. God did not create manner, matter to throw it away. God did not create the universe in ambivalence. The creation of the material universe has a purpose, 
And we find it in one of the old dog-eared pages of the Old Testament, the Psalms for crying out loud, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. You know how the rest of it goes. Our bodies as matter fit into the same category of physical things that God created for this purpose, namely His glory. God is not going to back out of this plan for human beings and human bodies to bring Him glory. And Paul tries to get that church in Corinth to understand this, even though they're going all over the place. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of, say it, Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your, say it, body the new american standard version says it this way therefore glorify god in your body why does does god go to all this trouble to get his hands dirty in a manner of speaking with our decaying and sin-stained flesh it is in order to reestablish it as a resurrection body, clothed with glory, clothed with immortality. Jesus died in order for God's purposes in all of creation to glorify Him would be fulfilled forever and ever and ever and ever. He died because God refuses to be God without us. And our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will glorify Him forever and ever. We will not be merely uncorrupted, but incorruptible. Think about how much guilt most of us in this room are going to forfeit in the resurrection. Because we're not just uncorrupted, but incorruptible. At the end of 2 Peter, Peter writes about the day of judgment as a day that we look forward to and a day whose coming we want to speed up. That's going to be kind of the jumping off text for the, the next time we talk about this. But notice 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. You drop down to verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with Him. Hey, just something kind of practical to think about and then we're done. Demonstrate the futility and foolishness in your life and the way that you live of rebelling against God. You know, isn't there a way that in our discipleship, through God's Spirit dwelling in us, being sanctified, being made holy, being made into many versions of Christ everywhere we go, the fruit of the Spirit where we're, we're growing in our love and our ability to be self-controlled and all of this. Isn't that sort of a testimony to the power of God that if He can take somebody as, 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 as short and despicable as somebody like me and turn me into a saint, doesn't that sort of say something about the power of God? And I don't even know what's going on in your heart, but God's doing the same thing with you. When people look at your life, is it a demonstration of God's power over sin? And is it, is, is it, is it a, a demonstration 
that it's really foolish, not only because the power is that great, but it's foolish to rebel against God because God is really trying to turn you into a rose. Trying to turn you into a jewel. He's trying to turn you into a gem. Through His Spirit, He is taking you and He's rubbing off all of those places that, that are rusty and they don't shine. He's turning you into something. He's turning you into a masterpiece. He's turning you into beauty. And all of that because you know what it is that not only that He's doing to you in the present, but what He has in, in store for you in the future. That there is a greatness. There is a greatness in heaven that we'll continue to talk about and, and, and enlarge as we go. But there's a greatness in heaven that not just when you're answering a, a question on a test can answer correctly, but it, it's, it's a truth, it's a, it's a foundational fact that it just captures your imagination and it changes the way not only that you think about life and think about death, but that you think about the future and especially how it affects you now. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. We're going to sing a song of praise and glory to God for the greatness of His blessings. But we'll have a couple of shepherds down here that if there's some ways that we can help you to, to get more in touch with that that sanctification, that turning you into a Christ, the work of God's Spirit in your life. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds about it. We want to pray with you. We want to counsel you. We want to study God's Word with you. But if you're here this morning, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that you don't really know where you're going, but you're pretty sure that you've never opened the door to consider going to God's heaven and to God's presence then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds too. And they can talk with you about what it means to give your life to the Christ in such a way that God becomes your father and he adopts you into his family. And for the rest of us, with our outside voices and with the strength of, of hope, let's stand and let's praise God together. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed 